Would you please take out your Bibles and turn in them to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We look today at the second half of this chapter that we started last week. It's similar to the past maybe four or five stories that we've read in Exodus, but it's also different in its own ways. It's similar in that Israel continues to be wandering in the wilderness and facing persecution of different sorts. But it is different today in the type of adversity that they face, and it's different in the way the story goes. It, they respond differently today. So we're going to read the second half of Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Would you please join me in standing? This is the reading of God's perfect and holy word given to his people. Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you the thanks for your word. It is a sharp, double-edged sword, piercing even to the division of bone and marrow. And today we ask that you will use your word to deal with your people graciously and gently, that you will teach us, that you will form us into the image of our Savior that where there is sin, you will rebuke us and gently lead us to our Savior, Jesus. Father, we pray that you will be our teacher. May your, word, may your spirit take your word and impress it on our hearts, that we might hear and in hearing be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think one of the great things that we see when we get to read the Old Testament and go through the Old Testament is that it covers over a thousand years of the history of God's people. You know, as opposed to the New Testament where we get really one generation, maybe a little bit of another one, but it's really one generation of, of the church. The Old Testament covers generations and generations and generations that come and go over a thousand years or more of God dealing with his people. 
And one of the great things about that is we get to read and to see this big picture view, not only of what God is doing in the world, but how people through history have learned to follow him, have learned to trust him, have learned to walk with him, not just once in one generation, but then we see one generation dies and another generation is raised up who has the same lessons to learn. That each new and each succeeding generation of people that come throughout the Old Testament has the same lessons that they need to learn. Each one of them has to learn who God is. What is his character? How does he deal with his people? And most importantly, perhaps, how to trust God. What does it mean then to walk with this God in the ups and downs of everyday life, learning to walk by faith? Because there are certain things about God that, that we can and should learn from books or from Bible study or from others, from the church, from, from our pastor. There are certain things, in fact, the Bible tells us, one generation shall teach the next generation your character. But don't we know there are also certain things that simply cannot be learned from a book? That we must learn them through hard experience. There are certain things about what it means to trust the Lord. There are certain things about how do we walk with God? How do we go through difficulty with God? How do we walk by faith when we literally cannot walk by sight? We do not see the way through. Well, we can learn from, from books. We can learn from others some things about how God is faithful, but, but there are certain things that will only be really learned through experience, aren't there? And so even as we go through Exodus, we're seeing, okay, Abraham at one point learned how to walk with God. And there was a process for him of learning the word of God and walking with him, hearing his promise and learning how to believe. But then Isaac and Jacob had to do the same thing. Then Joseph came and he had to learn the same lessons. And now we have Moses and the people of Israel and they can't just inherit all of that walking by faith. They, they learn it themselves. And God is taking them through the wilderness, teaching them these lessons. They are, they are, to borrow the name of an old Puritan book, they are with Christ in the school of holiness, learning each lesson as he gives it to them. Which is so much like our lives. There are things that we do learn from, from reading and from studying the word, but there are certain things that we learn only as God leads us down certain paths. We learn how to trust God through the experience of walking with God. But this is our guide. The word of God is a sure and faithful guide. And as we read this, we can sort of map all of Israel's experiences and their lessons, sort of map those onto our own lives and say, you know, this was thousands of years ago, but God does not change. Human nature does not change. My life still feels sort of like what it must have felt like for Israel in those days. And so we can learn their lessons, and we need to learn those lessons. I think one of the big questions of the Christian life for every believer is simply to learn what does it mean to lean on God? What does it mean to walk by faith? How do we learn to obey and even to persevere through the midst of difficulty? Those are the lessons, those are the big lessons of the Christian life that we learn only through experience, and we learn them only through the long course of life. There's no easy, quick answers to these 
But this is why we need these passages, these stories in Exodus. There's almost this, this epic quality to the journey of Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness. Uh, as they're, they're going, you know, 40 years through all these different experiences, problems, uh, oppressions that they face of all of these testings. But yet we see through all of it that the Lord is faithful to them. He never lets them go. He never lets them down. He delivers them from every circumstance. What we've had in the last couple of stories, you know, we've seen they've been really similar, right? They've been thirst, they've been hunger, they've been thirst again. There have been stories about God's provision. The question has been, is God faithful to provide for his people when they cannot see how he might do that? When all around them, the only thing they see is certain death because they're in the midst of a wilderness and there is no reasonable way for God to provide for their needs. And each time, God has shown himself faithful. In this story, it's a little bit different, isn't it? It's not, it's not hunger, it's not thirst, it's not provision. Now they're attacked. There's, there's actually military adversity here that another people, the people of Amalek, come and they fight with Israel. And yet the big picture issues are the same. It's adversity, it's trial, it's testing. The questions are the same. Is God going to be faithful in this? This is a new sort of testing. We weren't ready for this. We didn't plan for this. How will God be faithful to deliver his people? Now, we're going to see that there's at least two battles going on in this passage. There's the battle in the valley. There's also the battle on the hill. The battle in the valley and the battle on the hill. But first... Before we get to that, I want to just ask a, a beginning sort of introductory question about this passage. Why is Israel facing war? Why is Israel facing war? This is the first time uh, in the book of Exodus, at least since, uh, well, we're going to talk about the Red Sea in a minute, but this is the first time that as they have been wandering, that uh, they have been actually attacked by another army that they have had to engage with in battle and to actually go into battle with them. Uh, and that's very important because if you remember chapter 13, verse 17, one of the very first things that we are told when Israel leaves Egypt, right, after the Exodus, as they're on their way out, maybe not even in the wilderness yet, 13, 17, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So it tells us very clearly as soon as they left Egypt that God knew, okay, there's a, a fast way to get to the promised land, but if they go too close to the land of the Philistines, they might see war. And if they see war, they're going to be discouraged because he knows these people. Right? They'll get discouraged. They'll think this is too hard. They'll just go straight back to Egypt. Now, consider that for a moment. This is only a few chapters ago, and it's less than two months ago, according to the timeline in Exodus, that God is saying, I'm not going to take them the way where they will face war because they're not ready for that. He says, I know my people. My people are not ready to face war yet. That's just too much. They won't be able to handle that. They will say, forget it. It's not worth it. Let's go back to Egypt. And God, I have to say, is completely vindicated in that. 
right? Because we see every time they do face some new trial or some new testing, that's exactly what they say. They haven't done it yet. They haven't gone back to Egypt, but that's what they have said in their grumbling. They've said, oh, for the days when we were slaves in Egypt, right? When we sat around these meat pots and we had perfect provisions and all our needs were taken care of. Oh, the good old days. He knows that. And so instead, what does he do? Well, if he knows they can't handle one temptation, he takes them another way, and that way has not been this perfect primrose path, right, with no difficulties because he knows they can't handle that. No, it's actually been filled with trials. It's been filled with testings. It's just been filled with the exact kind of trials and the exact kind of testings that God knows his people need. Right? He told us very plainly, I'm not going to take them that way. They can't handle that trial right now. Instead, he takes them a different way, and it has its own trials. You know what that says to me? That God knows exactly what he is doing when he leads his people. Through trials or through not trials, whichever he chooses, he knows exactly what his people can handle, He knows exactly what they're able to deal with at that moment, at that point in their own growth in the Christian life, in that point in their sanctification, their ability to to process temptation and trial and to walk by faith. And he never takes them to a place that would overwhelm them. Right? He knows in the beginning they can't handle war, so we're not going to go that way. He takes them a different way that has different trials, different testing. And so now we get to chapter 17. This is only a couple months later, right? In the beginning of chapter 19, when they get to Mount Sinai, chapter 19, verse 1, will say, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they came to Sinai. So three months from Egypt to Sinai, they're not to Sinai yet, so somewhere in there, and now they're getting to war. God has taken them this way, and now they are attacked by Amalek and the Amalekites. And that tells us that because God is the one leading them here, because God is the one in his pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, that he knows that now they're able to handle it. Through the confrontations that they've had to this point with the confrontation with Egypt that changed his mind and came to attack them at the, at the near side of the Red Sea before they crossed it, that they learned something. Right? When the, the Red Sea opened before them and God made a way and, and the pillar of fire was at their back to protect them from Egypt and they got to the far side and then it closed up and they stood there on the sea and they looked at what God had done and they saw the chariots of Egypt bobbing up and down in the waves and they sang in the song of Moses there at the sea that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And then there was the time at, at Marah that they were thirsty and they saw God's provision through Moses taking this stick and throwing it into the water and turning it sweet. And then they came to uh, uh, the wilderness of sin in chapter 16 where they grumbled with hunger and God provided manna. And every morning they went out of their tent and the ground was covered with manna that they could eat. And they were to look at it, we remember, and to see, not just bread, but to see the glory of the Lord. So every morning they awoke to a theology lesson that God is a faithful provider for his people in the wilderness. 
And then it happened all over again in the first part of chapter 17 that they were thirsty, they were grumbling, they were testing the Lord, and the Lord provided water out of a rock. And so it seems as though, what have they done? They've passed Theology 101. And now they're ready for Theology 102 because in learning about God, he has got, they have gotten now to this point where they can face war. God knew they weren't ready at first, but now here they are. And he has brought them this far. Do you trust that God knows exactly what he is doing in leading you through deserts, in ordering your trials? That even God can, can look at your life and say, okay, I'm not going to give them that yet. They're not ready. But it could be that two months from now, he's going to give you that. Because he knows that in the meantime, he gives you these small intervening steps of other trials to build your faith, to draw you to him, to help you to, to despair of your own strength and to, in weakness, embrace Christ. And in that, to grow so that two months from now, you will be ready for the greater trial that he knew you weren't ready for yet. Do you know that God is a God who knows exactly what you can handle and that he can order our trials in the exact degree that he knows is best? Because he's a God who knows our hearts far greater than we know them. He knows our hearts far greater than we know our hearts. There's such a great lesson in this. I, I think of the words of Psalm 103, uh, which is reflecting on the wilderness wandering because it starts, verse 7, 103, 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then goes on to say in a few verses, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that great that God remembers that we are dust? that he knows our frame, and that in knowing our frame, he knows exactly how to lead us. In his perfect wisdom, he can take us exactly the route through life that he knows is going to be best for his people. Paul says the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 10. And we looked at part of those verses in 1 Corinthians last week where Paul is talking specifically about the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. And he talks about the rock that gave them water, saying that rock was Christ, who was struck in judgment for the people's sins and provided blessings for them. Well, just a few verses later, he, he draws this conclusion. He says, here's the, the end of the lesson. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's one of the lessons that Paul gets out of this whole story of wandering in the wilderness is that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Right? It doesn't say he won't let you be tempted. It says he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But he will be faithful and provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure what he gives. So, I want us to, to see sort of this big picture, this is, this is introduction, but to say God knows exactly what he's doing. He is forming this people. He is teaching this people and knows exactly when to get to 17.8 and to allow Amalek to attack. 
Because that doesn't happen apart from God's providence, apart from his sovereignty, and he allows it only in chapter 17, verse 8. So let's look at the story now of Amalek coming and fighting with Israel at Rephidim. There is, like I said, two battles. There's the one that goes down in the valley, but there's also the battle on the hillside. Because there's a really, there's a very real battle that goes on um, down in this valley. Amalek has come and he's fought with Israel. He's taken a cheap shot at them. Right? This is not, this is not uh, lining up, you know, two armies lining up on either side of the battlefield and then eventually running towards each other. Deuteronomy 25:17 tells us what happened. It tells us that the, the Israelites are sort of moving in this great column through the wilderness, right? Several million people here don't go in in one big group. They're going in this column, and it's at the end of the column is the weary ones, right? those who are kind of lagging behind. Maybe it's the old. Maybe it's the super young. Maybe it's those who are caring for others. They, do, they can't make the same pace, so they're at the back, and Deuteronomy tells us that he, that is Amalek, attacked you when you were faint and weary. And he attacked those who were lagging behind, those who were weak. So he's taking a cheap shot here. He's gathering around at the the weakest part of the herd of Israel, as it were, and he attacks. There's nothing noble about this, but we know the reality. This is the way spiritual warfare works. So Amalek has come and he's attacked Israel. He's taken this cheap shot and what we're going to see is that it's still the Lord fighting for his people. Right? The battle with the Egyptians at the Red Sea was totally different. There was never any confrontation. There was no engagement. They were separated by the pillar of fire of the Lord's spirit the entire time. The Lord said, you have only to be still. I will fight for you. That's not what he says here. Here, Moses says to Joshua, you go. Gather the men. Go fight with Amalek take the sword. They actually have to gather their weapons and they have to go. Now, it's still the Lord who's fighting for them, but God can fight for his people in different ways. Right? He can fight for them in saying, you only be still, I'll deal with this. And he can fight with his people by saying, get up, go, strap on your sword. There is a battle to be fought. So the people here are going to go. Now, all we know about the people is that they go. Right? Did, did it seem like there was something missing in this passage? Right? For the first time, they didn't grumble. For the first time, they don't complain. If they did complain, Moses didn't think it was worth writing down. There's no note in this passage. This is part of how we know that, that they've grown, that they're ready, that they're trusting the Lord, is that they go and they fight. They don't complain about it. They don't cry out in the, the whining way to the Lord, but they go and they engage it. And what Moses says at the end, verse 15, he builds an altar and he calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. That's the name of this altar that he builds to the Lord to commemorate and to celebrate and to worship at the end of a successful victory. Now we think about that. The banner was like maybe a, a flag, maybe a, a, you know, a banner between two poles or maybe just on one pole. But it has the name. You know, when a country would go out to war, they would have the banner, would lead them out in front, and that would show them the direction to go. And that would unite them. It was like their flag, right, that unites the army under one purpose. It says, this is him for whom we are fighting. Right? This is our nation. And Moses says, 
the name on our banner is the name of the Lord. That he himself is our banner. He is the one that we are fighting for. He is the one who gives purpose, that gives direction to us. The Lord is our banner. In other words, when they fought back against Amalek, we could say it wasn't really self-defense, right? Because it's not Israel on that banner that they go out to say Israel's honor has been attacked, that we are going to fight for and stand up for the honor of Israel. No, it's the Lord. Yahweh, his name, he is our banner. It's not self-defense, it's Lord defense. That they go out and say, in as much as they have attacked Israel, they have attacked the honor of our God. And we go out to fight, not for ourselves. It's not our name, it's not our pride, it's not our dignity that has been infringed upon. It's the name of the Lord. And we go out, we grab our swords, and we fight, not for ourselves. Not in our own name, we fight for the Lord. I think that is such an important point for us. I think that is so relevant for us these days. Because it can be easy for us, if we even think of ourselves as a church, it can be so tempting, so easy these days, for us as a church to lose our sense of purpose, to lose our sense of direction, to lose the idea that it's, it's the Lord who is our banner. And we might be tempted to pick up a different banner and say, we are going to begin to, to exist for ourselves. We are going to begin to exist for, for our purposes and our goals, our dreams that we have come up with that might not have anything to do with what the Lord has called his people to do. And we might say, we are going to take on this as our cause today or that. We don't have to look far to see that there are plenty of churches that are doing exactly that that have wandered so far from, from the purpose, the direction that God gives to his people, and instead are fighting under different banners. But we will say the Lord is our banner, that we exist for his work and for his worship, to do that and only that which he has called his people to do, that we will not fight for our name. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making the name of the Lord Jesus Christ known. We can do it as families, can't we? To say that we will take for our own family a different banner. That we're going to pick up some other banner for our, our purpose or for maybe for our goals as a family. And say, what are we going to live for? What's going to be our, our purpose in our family life? Will it be to take the Lord as our banner and to say that our purpose is to make Jesus great? To live for him? to give for him, to serve for him? Or do we, and this happens so subtly, it's such a temptation, everyone faces it, do we put down that banner and do we take up something else? Say, our family is going to exist for this or for that. We're going to spend all our time and our money on this or on that. And we don't realize we're carrying a different banner. We do it in our lives, individuals. Can we say with sincerity that it is the Lord who is our banner? that that is what gives my life direction. That every decision I make is based on, on this unifying theme, that I live to please the Lord. I live to listen to the Lord's word and to obey what he calls me to do. 
Or have we subtly, over time, without even noticing it, put down the banner of the Lord and picked up our own banner, whatever it may be, and said, I'm going to start to live for this. I'm going to start to give all my time, all my attention, all my energy of, of living and, and marriaging and parenting and, and say, I'm going to live for this direction because I want this goal. He says, the Lord is our banner. He is our desire, our unifying theme. Now, that's what unifies the soldiers. That's what brings them together for the, va- the battle in the valley. But we also see that as important as it is that those soldiers are fighting down in the valley, there's something unique about this. That in this case, the battle is not won by the soldiers in the valley. The outcome is decided up on the hilltop. Isn't this interesting? Most of us know this story. It's so unique in Scripture and so interesting to see that as the people are fighting down below, the real battle, if we could say it that way, is what's going up on top of the mountain. Now Moses here goes up onto the hill and he takes Aaron and her. Right? This is the first story where we hear about Joshua or her. But he takes Aaron and her and he takes them up on top of the mountain and he takes in his hand the staff of God, right? We're getting familiar with this staff that has been the instrument of God's salvation all through the book of Exodus. And he says he's going to take it and he's going to stand on the hill and raise his hand. And whenever his hand is raised, Israel was winning the battle. And whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were prevailing Now, what's going on with that? What is Moses doing? Many people suggest that Moses is on the mountain and he's praying for the people, right? He has a hand, maybe two, lifted up towards heaven, and he must be praying for the people. And this uh, has a lot going for it, right? Standing with your arms raised is one of the typical postures of prayer in the Old Testament. And Moses even gives this saying at the end where he says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And we can easily see how that would be taken to say that when we pray, it's as though we have a hand on the throne of the Lord, that we have the ear of God himself in our prayers. And so the story then is taught to take us, to teach us rather about the efficacy of prayer. That the battle is won not in the actions of the people, but in the prayers of the people. Now, that is an edifying interpretation. The only problem is the story doesn't tell us that he's praying. And it never says anything about words that he's speaking. It simply tells us he's standing with a hand or maybe two hands raised, holding the staff of God in his hands. And so, there's another way of understanding this, and it's, it's a little bit mysterious, right? Because the text doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, but I think it might be the better way if we look at the big picture. And we remember, just thinking of Exodus, who is Moses? Moses has such a big role that he plays in the book of Exodus. He is the mediator. Right? If we summed up everything that he did in one term, he is the mediator. He, he mediates between God and his people all throughout Exodus, this is very significant that when he he acts in a role as the deliverer of God's people, right? Of course, 
God is the deliverer of God's people. But Moses is the human agent that God calls. He, he, as mediator, he holds the staff of God and he executes God's judgments on uh, Egypt all throughout the plagues. As mediator, he will act as lawgiver from Sinai, that he will receive from God the law and he will give it to the people. He will be the one who goes on to Sinai to receive the covenant that he makes with God. He's going to be the one who sees the pattern for building the tabernacle. Every significant thing that happens in Exodus happens through Moses hearing from God and passing it along to the people. And one of the great ways that the New Testament teaches us through the life of Moses is to say, Jesus is like Moses, but far greater. Right? Jesus acts just like Moses did, except he's perfect at it, whereas Moses stumbled through it. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, <clears throat> Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So we're meant to be making that connection all throughout Exodus, that what we see Moses doing as mediator, as lawgiver, as covenant receiver, as deliverer, he is pointing us towards the far greater, better Moses that will come in the person of Christ. And so we see this picture, and there's some, there's some mystery here, but Moses, the mediator, goes up on the hill. While the, the battle is going on in the valley below, he goes up above, and he holds his hand with the staff of God in his hand. And so long as that staff is lifted up, the people are given favor by God, and they are victorious over their enemies. We don't know all the exact spiritual workings of what exactly was going on there. Maybe he was praying. Maybe it was just the, the mediator was standing and the staff of God was raised. The staff of God, like it was raised to strike the Nile, like it was raised to strike the Red Sea, like it was raised to strike the dust of the earth and the gnat. Here it's raised again and it's symbolically striking the Amalekites. But so long as that mediator is up on the mountain raising the staff of God, the people of God are victorious. Isn't there a really profound truth in that? If there's one thing I want us to see in this passage, it's simply to know and to understand and to get this, that, that we are in that valley that we are engaged with the enemy, that there is a battle going on, but hear this, there is a mediator standing on the mountain. There is a mediator whose arms do not grow weary, whose judgments are perfect, who never needs any help to keep those arms raised, that he is standing on the mountain for us, and so long as we have a mediator who stands on that mountaintop, we cannot lose that the battle might be fierce, that there might be real warfare going on, but so long as we have a mediator who stands faithful for his people, we cannot be defeated. I was struck this week um, in the adult Sunday school class where going through the book of Revelation, and I was struck how my preparations through Revelation and those through Exodus were, were kind of coming together on this point. 
So one of the things that Revelation teaches us throughout it, what it does is it, it talks about uh, the situation of the churches here on earth in this age that, that we endure much persecution, that we walk through much trial, that there are false teachers, there is persecution from those outside the church, there is discord of those inside the church. We have troubles, but it shows us that and then it takes us to a vision of the throne room in heaven. And it says, yes, in this world you will have trouble, but let me pull that curtain back into heaven and show you that there is one who sits upon his throne. And there is one in heaven who is fighting for you and has won the battle already on your behalf. That there is one who stands in heaven and from his throne he rules over all things. And this is what Revelation does. And it will switch back to a scene of, of the judgments of God on earth and the struggle of believers to be faithful. And the picture of the martyrs. But then it will take us back to heaven, to the church victorious, singing the praises of God. And it says, yes, we are down below. We are doing battle in the valley. But the great hope that we have as believers, and our great security is this, that there is a God who sits upon his throne. That we have a mediator in heaven sitting on his throne and his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he has ransomed his people for God. He has loved them and he will never let them go. And all our hope in this weary world, walking through the wilderness, is that there is a mediator standing on the hill. And Moses is just a picture for our weary hearts of the much greater Moses, Christ who stands for his people, who loves his people, who will not let his people go. We have a mediator on the mountain. And so that is the encouragement for us, that though we will walk, God, in his wisdom, knows exactly what he is doing with us. And he can take us through these trials because Christ has already overcome them. Christ has already overcome them, and none of these trials will ever have the power to prevent us from getting to the promised land. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful for your grace and your love towards your people that even while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us, that we don't deserve any of his benefits, and yet through your mercy, we have all of your benefits. We've received all of them. Lord, we ask that your spirit will work this text into our hearts, that you will strengthen us and encourage us. Father, make us faithful. Make us faithful to hear your word, to receive it, and, and use it in our lives to help us. Help us to withstand temptation, the temptations to grumble. Help us to trust. Help us to walk by faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.